Hello and welcome back. It's Benjamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Kutentek, with Mishpacha's home front, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia. And we were going to open with the tribute and the Velus, really, mourning for the more than 20 soldiers who were killed in a military accident, if you can call it, or a Hamas attack a few days ago. I mentioned yesterday, you know, this is two minyanim of men who were killed and the pain and the sorrow is deep. Correct. It was actually 24 because there was three officers actually were killed earlier that day. So there was 24, including 21 in one explosion. These were combat engineers of 600 meters or so from the border with Israel, clearing the way for a building to be demolished. And unfortunately, a Palestinian, you know, one of the Hamas used an RPG, which detonated, hit the building, which detonated all these explosives that collapsed as well known by now. Just think about the numbers. It's as if the U.S., if you just do the maths, times everything by 30 at least, adjusting the population differences. And it's as if the U.S. had lost a kind of 720 soldiers in one day. It's unfathomable, right? It's a small country. And if you go around, I think what we're seeing, the creation of a generation of wounded and shocked and bereaved families. But these were Miluinikim. These were people mostly with families, wives and children. There's another hundred widows and orphans, Right. We're witnessing here the creation of what we've not seen here, we've not seen since at least the Kippur War, possibly long before as well, a generation of bereaved and wounded and shocked people. And it's going to be a fundamentally, it is a fundamentally different country. And I think our thoughts and the tefillas have to be, and actions as well, have to be with these families who are just bravely going on and tribute to the soldiers who keep going back. But the army, what stood out for many people was a man, El Kanab Wiesel young man who wrote a letter to his family that was published after he was killed. And he said, don't be sad. I've gone to the word generation. We're going to defend Eretz Israel." And the Gevura Binyamin of these young men out there who not only go and fight, they actually do so trying to raise everyone else's spirit. That's something that is Jewish strength. They, it's something to be proud of, something to be sorrowful for their loss, but also something in a very strange, terrible way, a proud and wonderful moment when these things come out. We shouldn't see any more of these going forward. But yeah, let's just discuss a couple of the angles that came about as a result of that, because one of them is, I'd say, the creation of the buffer zone. What were they demolishing the building for? It's part of an ongoing program since Israel invaded Gaza to create a buffer zone between Israel and Gaza of at least a kilometer wide. The Wall Street Journal's got some good reporting on it. And they're coming out with a quote from a study by a professor named Adi Ben-Nun, professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, who's examined satellite imagery at the beginning of the war. And he says the military appears to demolish 1,072 out of 2,824 structures located one kilometer less from the border. Most of the buildings, he said, are residential. And now, this is the interesting thing with the The most built-up area of the potential buffer zone is near San Yunus, which is the largest city in southern Gaza, where obviously the heaviest clashes have been. Now, that's where the center of the battle is, the focus is. Right. We might add, Gedalia, that since Monday, when we spoke, and we were talking about, it seemed like the IDF was moving slowly in the San Yunus area. Now... They're, they're really hurrying up. They've completed, from what we understand, the encirclement of Khan Yunus, and they're probably ready for the final push to either try to capture the remaining heads of Hamas that are still in hiding there, and also uh, finish off Khan Yunus as a threat. So it'll take more time, but it's a move in the right direction. Right. And there's reports of the Yifasinwa Hamas boss changing locations as well. And so this idea, we're very much in the dark because media is not really allowed down there. You have some of the more informative reporting, although it's totally biased and slanted, is from outlets like Al Jazeera, because simply they're actually publishing stuff about what the Palestinians are seeing, which gives you an idea more. But uh, going back to the Wall Street Journal, 
which is notable. The reporting desk of the newsroom of the WSJ is known to be more left-leaning than the and less friendly to Israel than the opinions side of it. And they seem to be a conduit repeatedly for kind of official airings of grievances from the direction of the Biden people. In this case, it would seem to be this in the State Department, I would imagine, because officially they quote from Blinken. And then there's kind of officials speaking off the record. I'd imagine that's the State Department. And their words are the following thing. The project to create this buffer zone is a source of growing frustration for U.S. officials who say they first voiced their opposition shortly after the war began and watched with growing dismay as Israel's pushed ahead anyway. And then they come up with this one. U.S. officials warn that turning the border along the 25-mile-long Gaza Strip into no man's land will deepen, I quote, Palestinian fears that Israel intends to occupy all the part of the crowded enclave, make it hard to persuade other Arab governments to rebuild. My question is, aren't they equally concerned that Hamas may reoccupy those areas of the Gaza Strip and continue to commit acts of terror against Israel? Yeah, I mean, that's just the point. And as you said from the beginning, the concept here, it seems to be that Hamas and Palestinians give no ground. They literally can go back to, it is incredible how you can get away with saying, we support Israel, the Biden administration. Yes, we really support Israel's right to defend itself, but you must do nothing really effective to be able to bring that about. And this is where the issue remains, Biyama, because the world and America, have, the Biden administration, has not yet tweaked that we weren't going back, we won't be going back to the way it was. We don't want to run the lives of a couple million Palestinians there. It's not a pleasant job. But they cannot run their security because they're going to come for us again. And so this idea that we're not going to do anything, we're literally going to restore it in pristine condition, give over to a, to a bunch of Arab governments to run, that is an absolute non-starter. We're going to be deep in the Gaza Strip in security points for years to come. And that's a fact the world, including the Biden administration, is going to have to get used to look with Benjamin. I would make one more point. When Naftali Bennett was defense minister in probably 2018 or 2019, and the Hamas and the other terrorists started what they called kite terror or the incendiary kites, yeah. where they would send over kites with flammable material that would then catch fire when they landed on Israel's side of the border, burning farms and buildings on occasion. So Bennett suggested at the time that we need a buffer zone of some kind. He said, send in the Israeli IDF, send in the engineering corps of the IDF and dig up about a kilometer or two inside Gaza so that nobody can approach the border from the Gaza side. And that way they won't be able to launch their incendiary heights. Had we taken Bennett up on his proposition several years ago, October 7th probably wouldn't have happened. Israel would have been in the same bind as far as the international community is concerned because, you know, God forbid we took over some Gazan territory in order to make our lives safer. But you're right. This is what people are going to have to get used to. I would say the less that we push it publicly and talk about it, the better. You can't hide anything in this day and age anyway. But the more we try to talk about it and push it on the rest of the world, then the more they're going to push back. It's just something we have to do. We have to do it at the proper time. And the proper time will only be when we're really ready to withdraw from Gaza, which is still a long ways away. And then we'll just happen to leave a little extra territory on our side and we'll do what we have to do. But this has to be done. It's interesting that you reference Bennett and the, and the creation of a buffer zone inside Gaza. It's now clear that we were just deferring the inevitable. It was inevitable that you cannot live with an uncaged tiger right next door and a low fence. You've either got to cage the tiger or have a very, very effective fence. But it just reminds me of this whole business of the kind of dream which the Israeli public and leadership and all of us has lived for years in which you could just, yes, we can lock them out, throw away the key and there's nothing's good and we can get on with our lives and debate justice reforms. 
right? It reminds me of the advice someone once gave to me over here when I bought a car here in Israel. So he said, I talked about buying, you know, first-hand, second-hand car. He said, experience has taught him buying a second-hand car is just buying a first-hand car in installments. Meaning you're not going to save any money. Instead of the upfront pain of paying a large sum over here, you're going to be paying out lots of money down the line. That was his part. And that has proven to be, instead of the upfront pain of doing anything, of going, defying the world and defying Israeli public opinion, going into Gaza to deal with it under Bennett or under whoever years ago, we just have said, we've got it in installments. We end up paying the same amount and far more, in fact, down the line. And I think that's something that we're going to have to bear in mind when it comes to northern border as well. This is deferring pain. The only thing it does is defer it and makes it more likely we'll have the same and if not great to pain further down the line. That's what I think. So let's talk about the southern border now at this point. There's been a lot of news about the Philadelphia route, which is Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, but it's the Philadelphia route. It's uh, the border between the southern part of Gaza and Egypt. And it's an area where Hamas has been able to smuggle an incredible amount of arms and uh, military equipment, cement, et cetera, in order to build their tunnel network over the years, in the 17 years or 15 years, 17 years that they've controlled Gaza. And if you go back to the disengagement of 2005, aside from the major mistake that that was, that Ariel Sharon pulled out the idea from Gaza and the fact that he destroyed all the settlements and uh, moved 8,000, 9,000 Jews out of their homes, the final discussion there was, well, what about the Philadelphia route? Should we pull our troops out of there as well and leave it to Egypt to patrol? Or should we keep a presence there even while we're getting out of Gaza and Gush Katif? So there were two aspects to the debate at the time. One of them was that, well, no, we must stay there because, again, it's a border and uh, we have to control the border and it's a smuggling route. The second issue that came up was, but the IDF is no longer going to be in Gaza. And you're going to have a platoon of troops that are patrolling the border and they're going to be isolated. And it's tough enough to protect them when we're inside Gaza, but how are you going to protect an isolated number of troops along the border? And that was one of the big discussion points at the time. And eventually that's what Israel decided to do. They decided either they were trying to appease the international community and show we really pulled out of Gaza entirely including the Philadelphia route. That was Ariel Sharon's entire project. It was the idea that if we show the Palestinian, the international community goodwill, they will back us in anything we need to do, which was just a total misreading of the situation, to put it kindly. Right. Do you also remember that as soon as we withdraw from Gaza, that if they fire one rocket at us, we'll just fire a 1,000 ton bomb at them and everything will be fine and everyone will support us? It just goes to show that, again, this is all part of the conceptia, so to speak. Yeah. But now that Philadelphia is on the peric again, if you will, now that it's in the news. So the big decision is, are we willing to face some sort of military conflict with Egypt over it? Because Egypt has come out very strongly and said, no, this is our territory. And if you, the IDF, uh, tries to take over the Strip, then you're going to risk a fight with us and maybe even risk the peace treaty with us. So Israel has another big decision to make. Yep. Uh, are they going to go ahead and say, we need to do this and we're willing to uh, have a skirmish with Egypt? Is Israel willing to try to put whatever pressure they can on the U.S.? And then is the U.S. willing to put any pressure whatsoever on Egypt? Remembering that Egypt is one of the second largest recipients of, or probably is the second largest recipient of military aid aside from Israel. And is America willing to put pressure on Egypt and say that you need to give way? Or again, is this going to be another charge that's used against Israel that, oh, your occupiers or your colonialists 
and uh, you're trying to take military control of Gaza. This is a big issue. It's going to come up and it's going to be crucial this time to get the decision right. I mean, Benjamin, it's interesting just to supplement what you say over there. Mishpacha's print magazine done some useful reporting in this week's edition in which covering the Philadelphia route. So some good quotes over here. We have Major General Uzi Dayan, who's the former IDF Deputy Chief of Staff, who told us that the Egyptians are playing a double game. He's raised suspicions as to why exactly Egypt is so adamant they don't want Israel on the border. He said it's very possible they're afraid we'll discover exactly what transpired during the years when we didn't control the border corridor. That's what he said. So in other words, we say the, the idea that the Gazans, uh, the Hamas could simply just uh, smuggle such vast quantities of everything right under. I mean, the smuggle everything in the kitchen sink underneath those tunnels there. So it was with a nod, nod, wink, wink of local authorities, central authorities as well. In other words, they've not done what they should be doing to safeguard the border. That's number one. He says, in addition, the Egyptians don't want to control Gaza, but they do want a border with the Gaza Strip, which gives them power and influence. And you must not underestimate, Egypt is not a friendly local neighbor. This is a military regime, which is very, very Islamic in nature, which is it's not friendly to Israel. They're deterred by Israeli strengths, but they're not our friends. We have a cold peace agreement with them, a far colder than the one that's opened up with the Gulf states over the last few years in the Abraham Accords. They do not want to be dislodged from over here. So they don't want Israel back, but we need to insist. That's quote, so that's quote number one, Binyam. We have also from uh, General Gershon, who actually was a general who implemented the Gaza disengagement famously, or infamously, if you're from the Dati Lomi sector where he hails from, Binyam, correct? Is right, that- it's correct. And he's also had major league regret over that. But he's been one of the biggest fighters and writers in recent years, admitting that he made a mistake, admitting that it was the wrong move to make, and he's come back into the right-wing camp. Right. And so she said, this route, Philadelphia, is like the main power switch of Gaza. Even if we disarm the Gaza Strip house by house, the route will continue to resupply the terrorist organizations with arms and ammunition. And that he said, that therefore, what we need to be doing. And another point is, is the main exit route from the Gaza Strip. Many of Hamas's fighters left Iran for training via the Philadelphia route. We have to understand, if you control that route, they're not going to take their cock shell boats and head out from Gaza's pathetic port and sail by rubber dinghy all the way to Cyprus. That's not what's going to happen. You control them to a much greater extent. So it's very much this idea that linking to what we're saying before, the creation of buffer zone, controlling the Philadelphia route, those are the basics for controlling it. His conclusion was, operationally, Israel has the capabilities to implement it. The problems they face are mainly political. There are a million people in and around Rafah. Many of the refugees from the north are being in the south. And Egypt, obviously, is sensitivities. He says Israel, he thinks it will have the determination because this time it's got no choice and will be able to find a way to overcome them. So that's his conclusion there, which is useful to take in, in mind. But you know, and I think we can head over for some good news to wrap up. And we're just going to do a long glide. It's not exactly one item. We've got a few items over here. Do you want to share any with us? Yes, I have a couple of items I'd like to share. One of them actually was written up in Haaretz, uh, which is, again, it's a very left-wing newspaper, but they do some very solid reporting as well. They really have feet on the ground. And there was an article a couple of days ago about a construction firm in Tel Aviv that has a big project. People might be familiar with what they call Pinui Ubinui. What uh, you do is you take these old, old uh, projects of uh, row houses, so to speak, where hundreds of people sometimes live, and it's an urban renewal project. And what they do is they tear them down, and then they rebuild them on the same site, but bigger apartments, much more modern. And there's a company there that's now starting to hire only Jewish construction workers. They realize that it's a big project, they have to move on, and that the Palestinian workers aren't coming back so fast, if at all. So they decided, okay, we're going to start paying more, and we're going to hire Jewish workers. A lot of the workers who are being hired are men who have been discharged from the army 
in some cases, men who came back to Israel, they were overseas, and then they came back to fight in the war and they spent a couple or three months in Miluim in the war and they needed jobs. And they're also supported by grants from several government agencies where aside from the salary that they're paying on the job, there are uh, the ability to get uh, 10,000 shekels and bonuses over the first three months. So if this could be the start of a uh, Jewish uh, construction industry, I've long argued when I think you and I and many other people have experienced having to wait years sometimes for an apartment to be built because there's a lack of labor. So if we can get Jewish construction guild going and pay them decent wages, so I think it's a great thing. So I was happy to see that. The second shout out that I'd like to give is in the U.S. to Senators John Fetterman of Pennsylvania and Joe Manchin of West Virginia. There was a resolution in the Senate that was sponsored by Brian Schatz of Hawaii, who was Jewish, and he wants to tack on an amendment affirming support for a two-state solution to the foreign aid bill that will provide uh, military aid for Israel during this war. Now, uh, Schatz said he's not going to force it into the bill, but he did get 49 senators to sign in support that we got to keep the two-state solution alive. And both Senators Manchin and Senator Fetterman said, no, we're not signing on to that. Manchin said that when there's a Palestinian leadership that's willing and ready to recognize Israel, that's when I'll consider signing that kind of resolution. And Senator Fetterman said that when you put language into the amendment that criticizes Hamas for their role in all this, then maybe I'll consider signing on also. So, you know, good for these two men. And I'll also note that, at least as of this point, not one Republican senator has signed on, and I doubt they will get anyone to sign on. So if you're only going to get 49 votes, even if Senator Schatz does try to attack on the amendment, it's not going to go. But people in America who live in the states where their Senate races this year need to take a look at the candidates who are running. And I understand, of course, there are lots of other issues in America. You can't necessarily just vote for someone based on their stance on one amendment or their stance on Israel and the Middle East. But it's something that needs to be taken into account when you're looking at which senator to vote for or which party I'm going to support. I think that's a suitable ending there, but it just occurs to me that it's a sad day we need to be protected from Jewish senators by not Jewish senators. But you might say Brian Schatz is, you know, Schatz is obviously Sheer and it took Joe Manchin and John Fetterman to do Chalderas Hashatz to turn back the amendment by, by, by Brian Schatz. I don't know, it's sad that it has to be the case, but Hashem sends us Shlichem, a few of them in the right place at the right time. John Fetzman, John Manchin have emerged as people who stood up for the Jewish people and Jewish people, including spearheaded by this August podcast, thank them very much. And I wish you, Binyamin and listeners everywhere, good, healthy and lovely Shabbos.